Welcome to 321 Liftoff. My name is Wayne Belden, and I'm the president of Belden Communications, publisher of the Space Coast Fun Guide and SpaceCoastFunGuide.com. And we'll be bringing you 321 Liftoff every week, talking about tourism in Florida's fabulous Space Coast. With me are your hosts, Pete Lynch, known as Promo Pete, the director of business development for the Space Coast Fun Guide, and SpaceCoastFunGuide.com, and Bonnie King, former Deputy Director of the Space Coast Office of Tourism, as well as past President of the Florida Film Commission. Pete, Bonnie, we are thrilled to have you both as co-hosts of 321 Liftoff. Hey, welcome to another tourism conversation on 321 Liftoff, where we will discuss, naturally, tourism and all things fun. Today, our special guest and your new tourism friend is Laura Lee Thompson, owner and operator of the world-famous Dixie Crossroads Seafood Restaurant in Titusville, and also known for her efforts to inspire an appreciation for Florida's environment. Before we bring in Laura Lee, joining me today is my co-host, Mr. Promo Pete Lynch. Hey, Pete. Hello. I love that. love that intro. Thank you so much. Lots to talk about today with Laura Lee, including her diverse background as not only a fifth-generation Floridian, there's not too many of those out there, um, but how her family designed the tool for cracking the shell of the rock shrimp that we all love to eat. I'm a foodie guy, so I'm very interested in hearing that story. It's going to be really cool. That's a great story. And adding to our tourism talk is Wayne Belden, founder and president of Belden Communications. Good morning. I am so excited. You know, I've known Laura Lee now probably over 20 years and I'm so excited to hear about her time as a sea captain. That's really, that's going to be exciting to hear about. And also how she founded in 1997 the notable Space Coast Birding and Wildlife Festival. That's really become a big thing here. Well, Laura Lee, all of us agree that there is no one who is more committed to serving the finest in seafood at your Dixie Crossroads restaurant and no one more passionate about having a healthy environment. So we want to welcome you to 321 Liftoff. Oh, and thanks for inviting me. Um, I, I love these kind of uh, sessions. So. Well, this this conversation, too, is a way that we can talk to our visitor all across the, the nation, really, and to, and to let them know that when they come to the Space Coast that they have a new friend. So they can walk into your restaurant and say, hey, is Laura Lee around? But it's a way to introduce them to the people and the places that we have here on the Space Coast. So really, to get started... Um, let's introduce them to you to know your background and uh, how your family was a fifth generation. You have a great story to tell. Okay. Wow. Where do I start? Um, my great-great-grandfather, Louis Thursby, came up the St. John's River. See, the St. John's River flows north. So when you go south, you're actually going up the river. Um, and before the Civil War, he established a steamboat trading post at Blue Spring, um, which is now a state park. In fact, my family's ancestral home is still standing at state at Blue Spring State Park. So if you go there to see the manatees and you see that fabulous cracker home there on top of the Indian Mound, um, that, that's where my grandmother was born. And let's see, my grandfather was the other grandfather was the postmaster here in Titusville um, in the early 1900s. And, um, Saw a lot of changes. Uh, me, um, wow, where do I start? Um, 
I, I spent my childhood in a home that was right next to the Indian River Lagoon. Um, my father was a race boat driver for the Mercury Corporation, traveled around racing boats, and the family went with him. Um, I started fishing. My, gra my uh, grandpa Thompson ran the Titusville um, Fishing Pier, and so I started out fishing when I was just a little kid, um, and I, I grew up on the Indian River Lagoon. Uh, started commercial fishing when I was about nine years old, pushing a big net around, catching bait shrimp for my grandfather. Then I built some crab traps, and I ran 150 crab traps every afternoon um, after school. Uh, then I got a bigger boat um, and 500 yards of gill net, and I started fishing for mullet. And um, then, How and then old were you when you were fishing for mullet? 15, 16, 17. With your own boat? My own boat, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, I'd stay out all night, um, do my homework under under a little dim light bulb that I could hook to my battery with, with alligator clips. And uh, so I would set my nets and then sit there and do my homework and then pick up my nets and move to another spot. And, and uh, that's what I did. Um, and so then I, I worked my way up into bigger boats um, and started running commercial longline boats out, out in the ocean. Started out fishing for tuna and swordfish and then... Um, went over into the Gulf of Mexico and pretty much started the bottom fish longline industry in the Gulf of Mexico for snapper and grouper. That's wow. awesome. Oh, and, oh, and then, oh, that, that was like, Oh wait, still, there's yeah. more. Oh wait, there's <laughs> more. Yeah. And, and then I, I got off the ocean in 1987 and I um, came into my parents' restaurant, um, which was pretty small at the time, um, but it's been added onto several times through the years. And I started working in the restaurant and I've been there for 32 years now. Um, and, uh, during that time, um, I got appointed to the Brevard County Tourist Development Council. Um, I started the Space Coast Birding and Wildlife Festival and, um, I sit on several environmental boards. Uh, and since then my whole main, you know, thing that I like to do is introduce people that come to Florida as, as well as people that move here and even people that have been here all their whole lives um, there's a lot about Florida that they really don't know. And so I, I like taking them out and showing them bird rookeries and bioluminescent kayaking. Which and we're going to talk about. But one of the things I want to go back to is when you were like a child and your parents had the restaurant and the rock shrimp was there, you could not break that shell. Tell that story about how you invented the tool that that you could now eat the rock shrimp. Okay. Actually, my dad invented the tool. I invented the concept. Oh, okay. There yeah. you go. All right. It all starts with a concept, right? right. Everything starts yeah. with a concept. Everything so, starts with a dream. So so um, my dad built commercial fishing boats, and um, he built uh, back in about oh, 1966, 1967 time frame, he built the largest fiberglass um, um, hull in, in the world. And it, it was a 73-foot shrimp boat. Well, back then, fiberglass was a very, very new product. And all, all of the boats were made out of wood and steel. And the um, boat captains, nobody wanted to try out the fiberglass boat. They told my dad, if God wanted boats to be made out of fiberglass, he would have made fiberglass trees. So <laughs> um, dad took the first boat that he made and tried to fish it himself. And... He really didn't know what he was doing, so he would go out and follow the other boats around. Um, there are three species of um, soft shrimp that we catch here uh, along the coast here um, 
off of East Central Florida. We have white shrimp, which is close to the beach. So if you see, if you're here and you see a shrimp boat and it's real close to the beach, that boat's fishing for white shrimp. And then we also have brown shrimp, which are caught a little bit further offshore. And there's a really fine eaten um, species of shrimp. The shrimpers call them hoppers. Um, it, it's like a cousin to the Key West pink shrimp. And they call them hoppers because when they dump the shrimp nets out onto the deck of the boat, apparently these shrimp jump higher than the rest of the shrimp when they start flipping around. <laughs> so they call them hoppers. So the hoppers are found around the edges of the calico scallop beds, and that's also where you catch rock shrimp. And it's a nighttime fishery. So the boats would go out, and they would drag their nets and, and um, fish all night. And they would catch, oh, man, 10 times as many rock shrimp as they caught hoppers and they would shovel the rock shrimp back overboard all you know it was incredibly wasteful my father thought it was awful but he he, he was told there was no market for rock shrimp because their shells were too hard so he would come home from these rock shrimp or i'm sorry he was fishing for hoppers they would catch three or four hundred pounds of hoppers and they would shovel thousands of pounds of rock shrimp back over the the side of the boat so he would start bringing home rock shrimp when he came home from one of his trips and uh, he would challenge all of our, the neighborhood kids our, our home was like the neighborhood hangout because we had a pool table and a, a real pinball machine and two Fun. acres and oh, horses oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah so so it was where all the kids hung out we hated to see my dad come come home from a shrimping trip because we knew we were going to have to stop whatever fun activities we were involved in and we would have to go in the kitchen and try and dream up ways to cook rock shrimp now, I don't know if you've ever seen a rock shrimp, but the, their name is very appropriate. That's why they're called rock shrimp. It is a pinead. It's a member of the shrimp family, but the shell is very, very hard. It's almost impossible to be able to peel one with your fingers the way you can a soft shell shrimp. So we would sit around in our misery trying to dream up ways of cooking rock shrimp. Most of our methodology consisted of putting the rock shrimp in a pot of boiling water and adding seasoning sometimes or... You know, that, that's what we did. We boiled them, and then we sat around trying to figure out how to peel them. So one, one miserable day, it was in October, um, Dad came home, and we were all sitting around the table. You know, and I picked up a rock shrimp, and I looked at it, and you know, I was turning it around, rolling it in my hands, and then, I, and then I thought, the main thing that everybody said was it tastes like lobster. Man, it's a shrimp. It tastes like lobster. I was looking at it, and I turned it upside down, and I thought, what if they taste like lobster what if we cook cooked them like a lobster so i got off my stool and went over and got a steak knife out of the drawer and i cut the shrimp you know open down its stomach and i cracked it open and there was the meat right there you could see it and the other thing about rock shrimp too is like they're like little miniature sand vacuum cleaners that they eat sand and they process nutrients out of it and and they then they poop it out the other end. So they have a humongous sand vein in them. And if you don't get that sand vein out, then when you eat the rock shrimp, it's like chewing a mouthful of beach sand. It's, it's like when you're when you're body surfing and the wave smashes you down into the sand and you, you surf up to the beach with your mouth open and you got a bunch of sand in it. That's what it's like. So um, there was that sand vein laying right on top and I could just pick it off with my finger. So we cooked, a, we, we cleaned a, a half a dozen of them like that, you know, where everybody's going, wow, th this could be something. And, and we put them on a, a cookie sheet 
and mom melted some butter and poured it over them. Oh, it sounds good. And, I know, right? Yeah, it sounds yeah. good. Yeah, and, and, and we put them in the broiler. And I can still see this scene. It's so vivid in my mind of, of my mom and dad peering through the top of the crack of, of the oven door. It was open because we were broiling. And kids on both sides of them looking through the sides. And we watched those rock shrimp cook. And we watched them, you know, they cooked just like a lobster. The flesh went from opaque to white, started pulling away from the shell a little bit. Their little tails curled up and burned on the ends, just like a lobster. And we took them out and we ate them. And everybody went, wow, this is the way to do rock shrimp. So we cleaned a whole bunch of them. Dad says, I got to get these out to let people try them. So we cleaned a bunch of shrimp. And Dad and I went to um, Miss Ella's barbecue on the north end of town because Dad knew that Miss Ella had a big commercial broiler in her kitchen. So it's October, the World Series is on, um, there's a bunch of guys sitting around the bar watching the, the World Series, and Dad and I cook rock shrimp. So that is the first place, um, to my knowledge, on the planet where rock shrimp were served like a lobster was at Miss Ella's Barbecue. Um, unfortunately, it's down. I want to put a historical marker on that spot. You know, that's where Victorio's restaurant is I was is just going to ask where it is. Okay. Victorio's. So, great. Yeah. It's a great story. So, so that's what it was. So we served them to the, the men that were there watching the World Series, um, and they loved them. They absolutely loved them. And Miss Ella loved them because the rock shrimp are kind of naturally salty, and the more rock shrimp they ate, the more beer they <laughs> yeah, drank. Yeah, you get thirsty. Yep, yep. <laughs> and so we only thought our lives were miserable before that point because now – the next thing my dad did is he bought a chest freezer and he put it in the utility room right next to the washing machine. You could barely move around in the utility room. And we had to process rock shrimp every day after we came home from school. My mom had this lineup of kids that processed rock shrimp in her kitchen every day. So there would be some kids sitting on a stool with a steak knife sawing the rock shrimp open. And another kid would be standing on a bucket at the sink, rinsing them off. A couple other kids would be packing them. You had to line them up like little soldiers and put layers of wax paper in between them. And we packed them in four-pound boxes and put them back in the freezer. My job was to visit. We, we had to count it on almost every mom-and-pop bar and grill up and down the Indian River from Melbourne to Titusville. And I got to deliver the shrimp. I was 15 years old. Didn't have a <laughs> wow. driver's license. And I knew every bar owner <laughs> between here and Melbourne. Hey, well, you know, that makes for a fun, uh, fun childhood. And, you know, it's a small price to pay to get to come over and play pool and pinball at the house, you know, to <laughs> right. clean some shrimp. Of it. But it's a great story about how the rock shrimp you, that you could eat it because, I mean, I go there because I love your rock shrimp. So everybody who comes has the opportunity to learn um, to learn about what it is and to eat that fabulous food. Yeah, I love seafood. We have more than rock shrimp, too. We have another yeah. species of shrimp that's interesting. It's a um, deep-water shrimp. And rock shrimp's a deep-water shrimp, too. Um, and they're also very clean shrimp. These two species of shrimp, they never spend their lives in an estuary. So like most shrimp, um, they, there's, they um, grow up in an estuary, and then they move out into the ocean to spawn. So they spawn out in the ocean. The little microscopic larvae somehow make it back into the inlets and into the estuaries where they grow up, and then they go back out in the ocean to finish growing up and spawn and die. They only live a year. Oh, so, wow. yeah, they go, they go from an egg to, you know, a, a white shrimp can be 12 inches long from one end to the other counting its antenna, and uh, they do that in a year. Rock shrimp, 
we don't know that much about them. The, the, there never has been much research done about them. The royal red shrimp, they believe that they have a two-year lifespan. Rock shrimp are found in 90 to um, about 350 feet of water, right on the edge of the continental roll-down. And then further offshore, on the, on the blue mud bottom, further down the, the continental roll-down, you find the royal red shrimp. And these are the most delicate, sweetest shrimp you'll ever eat in your whole life. And again, very, very clean product because they never come into the estuary and are exposed to the, the pesticides and the nutrients that are found in our estuaries. And that's one of the things I love about it, too, is that the food is fresh. And, you know, with everything that you're doing there, it, that is that, that really makes it stand out and, and taste. It tastes different. You can actually taste the difference, yeah. I believe. Well, we support American fishermen. We, we buy all, almost none of what we sell comes from... Um, well, actually, nothing. It's all it's all domestic seafood, and so um, it's not all fresh. I want to correct you on the fr- on the fresh. Okay. Um, we buy we buy our shrimp from boats that have freezers. So okay. a- actually, the concept of fresh seafood sometimes it's misleading because you can have a um, shrimp that's been caught and frozen within fifteen minutes out of hitting the deck, or you can have um, Technically, fresh shrimp that have been sitting on fresh, you know, freshwater ice for three or four days, and that leaches all the flavor out of them. So you're much better off, at least as far as shrimp are concerned, unless you're buying it from a day boat that, that fished that morning and came to the dock that afternoon, and you take it home and cook it that night. You're better off with a fresh frozen product. Your flavor profile is going to be much more superior. Okay. Sounds good to me. Now, while all this is going on and you have the restaurant and you're very much involved in the environment, and on behalf of when you worked with the um, Office of Tourism and the Tourist Development Council, you would take FAMS, which are familiarization tours of media people out on kayaking and canoeing into the Indian River Lagoon so they could experience manatees. I like to call you because I have been with you on many of those times, <laughs> the manatee whisperer. In the sense that wherever we would go, it seems like the manatee knew that you were there. Or you knew where the manatees were, but I swear, I remember you hitting the side of the boat one time, and then they came. I don't know what it is about it, but you have it. So talk to me about your 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 environmental, your environmental side. Well, I'm, you know, running a, a commercial fishing boat. And killing fish is really not the picture that people have of an environmentalist. But really, fishermen are like, they're the barometers of what's going on out there. They're on the water every day, and they deeply care about the environment. They deeply care about the fact that uh, um, some of Florida's waterways are, are, are being impacted by growth and development. And it's affected, it's impacts, it impacts fishing. So um, fishermen are environmentalists. But, um, you know, I wasn't technically an environmentalist. In, I'd been at the restaurant probably about 10 years before I got involved in, in the environment. And um, I'd, been a, I'd been a subscriber to Audubon magazine. You know, I used to sit in my captain's chair and read Audubon magazine out in the ocean. And there was these things called birding festivals that I kept seeing. And I was watching the growth of these birding festivals. And... I was distressed about <clears throat> what was happening to our Indian River Lagoon. I could I could tell every time I went out on it that that it was in serious trouble, and so I thought, well, people need to know. They you can't expect people to try to 
save or preserve something that they don't even understand anything about. So I decided that I was going to start a birding festival because I thought a birding festival, birding and wildlife, would be a good way to teach the people that live here about what we have. And, and also, um, and there was another angle, too, in that here in Titusville, in North Brevard County, we are blessed to have a tremendous amount of con conservation lands. In, in fact, the town is almost surrounded by conservation lands. Our growth is limited here because of the amount of conservation lands that are found in North Brevard County. And so I, I got tired of hearing um, you know, people on the city council and, and members of the business community bemoaning the fact that we have so much conservation land because we couldn't sprawl and, and build everywhere. Um, we don't have high-rises or condominiums on our beach. It's a national seashore. We have 140,000 acres of the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge that's been preserved because of the Space Center. And then on the west side of town, there's literally hundreds of, of thousands of acres in preservation because the St. John's River floodplain is about five miles wide uh, west of Titusville, and all that land's in, in um, preservation. In fact, we have one of the largest wilderness areas um, just between the road that goes to Orlando and the road that goes to Sanford in the entire state. It's all wilderness. And if you, and if you are a nature lover, it's a wonderful way to just relax and just go out in the open and breathe that, breathe that fresh air and take it all in. Yeah, look at the flowers and the grasses, and we have a tremendous amount of wildlife here. So I said, well, I'm going to start a birding festival. So, Because I, I looked at every January, Wild Bird Magazine would publish this map, um, and it have a little star where all the birding festivals were, and then you have a little paragraph about your birding festival. And there were no stars in the entire southeastern United States. The closest birding festival stars were in Texas and Virginia. So the whole southeast is like vacant of birding festival stars. So I want a star on Titusville. <laughs> And I also knew that the Audubon Group um, in Clearwater, uh, over in the Tampa area, they were planning a humongous birding festival the following year. And so they were going to get a star on the map. And I wanted Titusville to have the first star. So I, I was talking to my dad about it. He finally got tired of listening to me talk about it. And he says, well, if you want to start a birding festival, go talk to the president of the Chamber of Commerce. So I did. I I. I I got up my courage and I, I called I called Mr. Fleming, the president of the Chamber of Commerce, and I invited him to lunch at Dixie Crossroads. What I found over the years is that shrimp is really good bait. I mean, it not only works on fish, it works on people too. So <laughs> nobody turns down a lunch invitation um, at Dixie Crossroads. So he came, and I was expecting him to blow me off, you know, and listen to me and pat me on the head and say, yeah, that's a really good idea, Laura Lee, but, you know, let's eat lunch, and I, 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 I'm busy. He stayed for three hours listening to me because he had no idea of all of the stuff that we have to do here in North Brevard County. Um, he, he was clueless. And, and so he stayed for three hours, and, and then he finally said, okay, well, I don't have any money from the chamber that I can give you legally. Um, but he said, I can give you office space. So they gave me a little closet to work out of, out of the chamber office. And they gave me, um, Donna Thorstad was working here. And then they gave me Donna uh, as kind of some staff help. And we started a birding festival. And we had like 150 
friends and relatives at the first one, and I gave away <laughs> a lot of shrimp. But the festival's grown over the years, and it's now probably the most significant birding and wildlife festival in the United States, possibly the, possibly the world. And you got your star on Titusville. And we got the star on Titusville, and we beat we beat the West Coast. Fabulous. Love that. Uh, excellent. It's a great story. And, you know, it just shows, you know, and that's one of the reasons we started this podcast is to let people know how much stuff there really is to do in this area. I mean, whoever knew that really, I didn't know. I mean, that birds that people would travel all around just to follow certain birds and to seek certain birds. I was fascinated when I learned all that, which I did because of you. <laughs> and I, I just found it very interesting. And I love, I love birds. I mean, I love to hear the sound of birds. That's a big thing with me. But to know that people will actually travel with their, tr- with their travel trailers or whatever and just follow the birding festivals to seek certain birds was amazing to me. They'll do that. And if they hear like a rare bird shows up in California and they're in New York City, they, there are people that will get up from their desk and just go straight to the airport and book an airplane and fly out. And see the bird and get back on an airplane and fly home. It's they're, they're, some of them are pretty fanatic. They have these. They have lists. They have all kinds of lists. They have like a life list, a year list, a county list, a yard list, and they maintain all these lists of all these birds they've seen. I don't list. I I find it to be incredibly distracting. I just like looking at birds and watching them. Oh yeah, I mean everything about it. It's just it's relaxing. It's it's fun. And not my only that, will, my but kids will drive down the road. You know, they're you're young now. Oh, look an osprey! Like you know, they'll they'll, so they'll know, the, know the bird yeah, name. It's, it's very awesome. good. Yeah, credit to my wife because she you know has taught them that. But in this area, you do see so many different varieties of birds and stuff that it's it's nice. It yeah, really the other is. the other Overs- the other great thing about it also is when the people would come in here for the birding festival, they got to do other things as well and got to see our area as a destination in addition to all the other nature things that we were doing. So that was another eye-opener for a lot of these people to be able to introduce the Space Coast. Plus, the media, the attention that we got off of it was amazing because, again, our name got out there and people began to realize that we were maybe more than just space, more than just beach, but now the nature aspect became very big. Yeah, we even had a picture of the Brevard County landfill in the New York Times. That's true. <laughs> I remember that. Who would have wow. thought a landfill? <laughs> wow. Who would have thought that a landfill would be a tourist attraction? What is but our highest elevation point? love that. <laughs> yeah. Birds love the landfill. And that was one of your... Um, um, uh, what are you well, calling one it? One of our field trips. Right, one of your field trips was, that, was to, to go, go to the, the landfill. landfill. But I know that one of the other things that you're also very involved in also was the bioluminescence. And we were talking about it previously before on a lot of things that we talked about here on the show. And tell us about bioluminescence. Well, bioluminescence is made by um, little tiny organisms um, it, it, that live in the water. Um, the, uh, our, the predominant species here is Pyridinium um, bahamis, I think is the second name. But and that's the name that we never say. Pi- yeah, right. yeah. We never say that. Right. Py- pyridinium. Um, and, and, and it's organisms in the water. And, and they do this. It's the same thing. It's like a firefly. It, it's the same color as a firefly. Um, certain organisms flash like a firefly. Um, they do it in reaction to um, danger or be in touch so like if you you know pull your kayak paddle through the water 
it makes a huge glow. And then there's other um, beer organisms that are also bioluminescent, like comb jellies. So if you're dragging your kayak paddle through the water and you've got this green glow from the, from the microscopic organisms, and then you hit a comb jelly, it's like this big explosion of, of green. And then there's the, the other animals that are in the water. So like um, dolphins, say a dolphin swims, swims along, and you can see the dolphin swimming along, and then the dolphin breaches uh, so it can take a puff of air. If the bioluminescence is really, really strong, you can actually see the bioluminescence in the plume of air that the dolphin exhales. It's just a, an incredible sight. Wow. And, Beautiful. And, yeah. And the manatees, they look like gigantic green ghosts down in the water. And other, you know, fish, oh, schools of mullet. It's like um, when they streak off from the boat, it looks like bottle rockets going off from, you know, from underneath your boat. And they jump, um, they jump, and it looks like, I don't know, it looks like popcorn, green popcorn. If you get into a big school of mullet it, it, and, all, and they're jumping and you've got all this splashing going on and streaking going on, and it's just incredible. It's like those? the 4th of July fireworks it, under, under right. the water. Right. It's even yeah. better. And, and you usually have a lightning storm going on off in the distance too during the summer nights. So this combination of the bioluminescence in the water and the distant lightning storms is it's it is really an experience. Now, the organisms that are in the water, they're there year-round. So yeah. is it, do they become bioluminescent because of the temperature of the water? Is that, is that what it is? It, it, it's definitely a warm a water phenomenon. Okay. So it's best is from like mid-June through, depends on when we get tropical systems in the fall. Right. So I've seen it last well into November if we don't get a hurricane. Awesome. But we can get a, a hurricane in September and it busts it all up and it, it's never as good after, after you get that much fresh water dumped in. Um, it likes bright sunny days so you can have three or four bright sunny days in a row and, and it'll be absolutely incredible. And then you get a couple of cloudy days and it knocks it back. It's not as bright but as soon as the sun starts shining again then it, it fires back up again. How does the moon does the moon play a the role? Moon, the moon is detrimental, so you don't want to go on a full moon night. If you're going to plan a bioluminescence trip, try to get during um, the the five or four or five days before the new moon, or four or five days after the new moon. That's when you're going to get your best best effect from the bioluminescence. Now, on a full moon night, you can. Oh, here's two another tip. This is when I really like to go. I like to go about three or four days after the full moon because you can be out on the water and it's pitch black but then eventually the the the, the waxing moon will start coming up in the east and then you you give it an almost full moon rise you know while you're out on the water too that's so sounds uh, like a new moon yeah. new moon or or a couple of two or three days after the full moon are the best times to go so if you're if you're thinking about doing a bioluminescent tour this is the time of year to do it. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, right. guys, make your plans because this is a really cool thing about our area. Um, this doesn't happen everywhere in the, in the United States. So come on down, plan a kayak tour now because this, it, it truly is amazing. Yeah. Well, because we don't have any lights um, on the eastern shore of the Indian River Lagoon in North Brevard, we're actually, and that's because of the Space Center. Space Center is all dark. And we're, Titusville is like the only town on the whole east coast of Florida other than Oak Hill 
that when you look to the east at night, you can see the stars and the moon coming up right from the horizon because That's there awesome. are no lights on our eastern horizon. And so this location is one of the best locations in the whole United States and one of the best locations in the world for bioluminescence. The kayak guides have told me that it is very good this year, that it's much better than it was last year. It also varies from year to year, too, depending on the, the pyridinium conditions. And it's hard to take a picture of it. It's very that's hard that, to take a picture problem. of it. But you know what? You get that memory, and that stays <laughs> yeah, in your head. Because exactly. it, it, I, I, the first time I did it was probably five, ten years ago or something like that, and I remember to this day, like, the first time the, the or, you know, I hit the water, it was like, whoa. <laughs> So it is something that you keep with you, whether you get a picture of it or not, you know, you'll have it in your head forever. And it, I highly recommend you make your plans to do that because it's awesome. It is awesome. Um, the other experience that I had, and uh, there was an, there's an island of just birds that you're not allowed to go on. Do you know which one I'm yeah, talking yeah, about? Yeah, Mullet Head Island. Mullet Head Island. Okay. It, it's right next to Hallover Canal. It's an easy paddle to get out there unless the wind's blowing. So we were out there um, paddling out there with Laura Lee. And let me tell you, the birds, loads and loads, thousands of birds that are out there. And they almost know that you are not allowed. They have <laughs> they have little boards that they say, you can't go past this time. So it's like the birds know that you're not allowed. And they dive around you to say like, like they're, they're mocking you to say you can't come. That in itself was a total experience for me. I thought that was very, very cool. Yeah. Mullethead Island is probably the most significant island for um, the threatened reddish egret in the state of Florida. Um, in fact, Merritt Island is, is probably the stronghold of reddish egrets, the, the remaining reddish egrets, you know, and their numbers are down because so much of the salt marshes have been developed with housing developments and commercial development. But um, there's a, about a dozen species of birds that nest on that island. All, all of the major egrets and herons in our, in our area nest there, and white ibis and um, anhingas, cormorants. Hundreds of pelicans. You can see the baby pelicans in the nest. It's just incredible. It's a fabulous thing. Well, you introduced me to it. I got to tell you that you introduced me to all of that when I worked with you with the Tourist Development Council. And it was a, and very educational, very interesting. And you are definitely someone that I want everybody to get to know who you are. When they come to the Space Coast, you got to look up Laura Lee and you got to come to Dixie Crossroads Restaurant. Can we talk about Dixie Crossroads for, for a little yeah. bit? Because you know, this is 4th of July weekend. And, you know, I, I look at like the American dream and what you want to do. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago that Dixie Crossroads was, was a diner with 30, <laughs> with 30 seats. That's, that's what we're reading. And now it's, it's one of the biggest restaurants in the town, you know, seating wise, the food is great. It, it's so well known. So that's the American dream. You know, you start from something little and you grow it into something big. Can we how about a little history on the restaurant and, you know, everything that we have over there? Okay. <clears throat> so my dad, like I said, he was building commercial fishing boats and commercial pleasure boats. You might have seen some of them. I mean, they're old now, but our, 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 our recreational boats, they were, the line was called T-Craft for, for Thompson. And um, those T-Craft boats, if you can find one now, it's like finding a Model T they're, they're worth way more money now than my dad ever got when he was building them. They keep a and bunch in the garage. They're the highly sought after. So if you can find one in someone's backyards with oak leaves all over it and you can talk them into letting you buy it and you fix it up, 
you'll be the envy of all the people on the, uh, on the spoil island when you arrive there in your in your tea craft. Yeah. But the, the fishing boats are most of them are still around too. It was a my dad built a good boat, um, but he was a victim of the economy in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And those of you who are old as I am will remember that during that time in the 70s, we had the oil crisis and the embargoes and the oil shortages and huge lines at the gas stations. And you could only get 10 gallons and you could only go on odd days that. or even days. Remember that? It was awful. Yep. And, um, and, in, and the economy crashed after that. Um, the prime lending rate went up to 21% at the banks, which equated to 24% for consumers. Um, my dad had two years' worth of boat orders um, at, at that time, two years' worth of commercial fishing boats on order. And this um, rich guy from Miami came up and, and approached my dad, and, and um, he, he was quite overweight and um, had all kinds of health issues. And he said, I want to go around the world, but I'm, I, I physically can't do it in a sailboat. I mean, that's how you go around the world because most, most smaller boats don't have enough fuel capacity to make the longer passages. So I want to go around the world, and I don't want to sail. I want a trawler yacht. And, and he said, I will pay for the tooling and buy the first boat if you will make a 90-foot trawler yacht for me to drive around the world. And so dad said, sure. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Wow. At that time, we had two years worth of commercial fishing boats on orders with, you know, with deposits. And so we started the tooling on this 90-foot boat. And then the economy started crashing. And um, the prime rate was going up. And so people that were borrowing money were looking at 24% interest. And um, so they started canceling their boat orders. They called my dad up and they said, Captain Rodney, I can't catch enough fish to, to pay the interest on a 24% loan. Uh, so keep my deposit, do whatever you got to do, but cancel my order. So people were canceling their boat orders. And in the meantime, we're still, you know, putting together this 90 foot mold. And then the little, little, um, the guy from Miami called up my dad and said, Oh, all my, you know, my, my investments and everything are, are not so good. And, um, you know, I, I can't keep funding you, you building the, the mold. I'll buy the first boat, but, you know, I, you know I'm out of the equation for, for building the mold. Well, my dad, was he's bullheaded. And once, once he starts some kind of project that everybody thinks he can't do, he's bound and determined to do it. So he's, he kept on going. And at that time, we had two seafood restaurants, um, three boat plants, and we were running a, a commercial rock shrimp processing operation down at Port Canaveral that was processing 10 million pounds of rock shrimp a year. And so he kept on going. He was going to build, he was bound and determined to build this 90 footer. We're all going, Dad, we need to cut back, you know, to, to cancel the 90 footer. But he kept on going. And then, then he got in trouble and he started selling off the assets. He sold the two restaurants, went first, and then the, the rock shrimp processing went next and you know finally it just all caved in on him and um he had to declare bankruptcy so he lost everything we lost everything that the whole family had worked for because all four of us kids i have a, a sister and two brothers all of us you know worked in the boat plants and um you know from the time we were children we lost it all and he had to start all over again 
And so he said, well, we employed over 100 people at the boat plant. He said, I want to have something small, something that your mom and I can run and operate by ourselves. And I've always wanted to have a restaurant, so I'm going to start a restaurant. So he started out, it, it was a 30-seat, kind of a diner-like thing. Um, it had an open, we had fish cases in front of the kitchen, and people could come in and pick out their fish, and Dad would clean it for them and, and cook it for them. And you could see right through the glass fish cases right into the kitchen. And um, he had paper plates and plastic forks and napkins. And he, had, he built a great big, huge smoker on, on one side of the dining room with a big glass wall in front of it so people could watch him smoke and mullet. And that's how we started out. And, um, you know, and it was very popular. And so then he added on. Um, and in 1987, that was when I, we sold the fishing boat, and I came in off the ocean to help in the restaurant. And we, add, we, we kept on adding on. So we started out with 30 seats and paper plates and plastic forks and spoons. But now we have real silverware and um, 465 seats. So we have an outside bar area um, and that seats about 55, and then the rest of the seats are inside the restaurant. And actually... You know, we 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 had like two and three hour waits for many many years, but we were selling everything too cheap, and then we got a um, a new manager and and he came in and helped us adjust the menu because we were we were going backwards, and um and the two hour waits you know went down after we raised the prices, but we still were known for selling quality seafood and we still ha- we still have waits, but they aren't three hours. Anymore. But it does say a lot about people who are going to wait. Right. To eat. Oh, absolutely. Because, talk about the you, quality of your product for of people to be willing to wait. You know, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So for a while we were thinking maybe the restaurant's too big, you know, because during lunch times, during the slow times of the year, we don't open a couple of dining rooms and. And we were thinking it would be more efficient if we had a smaller restaurant. But now with the COVID, it's worked out really, really well. Oh, yeah, because we out. have so much room at the restaurant. We can keep everybody spaced out and, and uh, we're only seating every other table. And it's worked out really, really well. Our customers feel very um, safe because people aren't all jammed together in our restaurant. So now we're glad it's big. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. And we appreciate you being here today. And telling us about your history, your story, um, your adventures, and uh, and I and I appreciate all that you do for the Space Coast. Absolutely, absolutely. She's been a real hero. And when I first came to the Space Coast in 1999, uh, everyone told me you have to go meet Laura Lee Thompson. You have to. She's going to bring you up to date on everything about this place. Because I, I was a publisher. I wanted to publish the, the Space Coast Fun Guide. And I needed to learn as much as I could. And everybody said, got to go to Laura Lee Thompson. Well, I'll tell you, I moved to Florida from Maryland. So I, I lived on the, on the water. I was a crabber as a young kid. But I moved to Florida in 1990. And we've been going to Dixie Crossroads ever since then. But I had not gotten to meet Laura Lee um, until late last year. I joined Belden Communications and the Space Coast Fund Guide at the end of September, early October. But I believe it was at the TDC meeting when um, you're – you were stepping down from the board. You had been there forever. And you had prepared a, a speech that, that I'm still getting goosebumps about right now. Now, seriously, it, it, you talked about all the things that you had accomplished in your time on the board of the TDC. And I, I just want to tell you that in my career, if I can ever 
do half of the stuff that you've done in the time that you have been in our area for our area, that will be a very successful career for me. And I, I, I really mean it. That was awesome. And thank you for everything that you've done for our area. I'm, I'm a big fan of Brevard County and, and the Space Coast and doing everything that we can do. And I did, did want to tell you that, that you've done some amazing things for our area that will continue forever. And, and you've built a legacy, and that's that's all you can really ask for in, in this life. So great job, and thank you. Well, I appreciate the kind words, but I, I want to make a correction. It, in my talk, it wasn't things that I had done. It's things that we had done, that the TDC had done, and that our community had done. And and I was blessed to be a part of all of those things that happened while I was on the, the tourist development for 20 years. And, and I, I want to you know, tip my hat to, to Wayne and Bonnie, two icons uh, of the tourism industry here in Brevard County. It's such an honor to be sitting here with you guys today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Laura Lee. That's high praise coming from you. And I want to say you recently uh, celebrated a birthday and uh, we have something. We have a little cake for you. So when we end the, we end this, we're going to Sit down and have some cake. So. Wow, that's not yeah. a little cake. <laughs> that's a big cake. <laughs> a big cake. I'll have to take that to the restaurant. There, whatever, whatever absolutely. You know, share you share with everybody <laughs> over there. But there well, thank you. But happy thank birthday. You. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you for joining us. Guys, if you're coming to the area, make sure you check out Dixie Crossroads. Um, I'll tell you, besides all the amazing seafood that she talks about, my mom would be upset if I didn't mention that they have the best prime rib in town too. <laughs> so it's, it's not just the seafood. Right. You know? Every time I, I look at her, I'm like, how are you, how are you getting that? She's like, try it. And then yeah. I tried it and then I'm like, all right, well now I understand. So, you know, you sit down, you get the corn fritters guys. There's a reason they call hush it the puppies. world. <laughs> yeah. There's call a reason they call it the world famous Dixie Crossroads. And if you're coming to our area, make sure you check it out. It is Thank absolutely you. Thank awesome. you. And if you want to take some seafood home with you, my sister runs the Wild Ocean Seafood Market. Which absolutely. Is absolutely. Definitely right. mention that. They will sell you a cooler and a dry ice, and you can put it in your car and take it home with you. There you go. Excellent. Sounds good. That's pretty good. Well, Bonnie, next week mm-hmm. um, we're going to be talking more about Titusville here. Um, we are. We're going to have uh, Marsha Gadke, who is the president and CEO of the Titusville Chamber, which is where we are today. And um we always are out of here, and we appreciate her help with that. And also the mayor of uh, Titusville, Walt Johnson, who will also give us an input and tell us about Titusville as a as a tourist destination. Yeah, it's going to be a great show. Uh, we love to learn about North Brevard, the whole area. So we'll probably be talking some more corn fritters and seafood at Dixie Crossroads next week, too. But thank you, everybody, for joining us on 321 Liftoff, and we'll see you next week. All right, everybody, thank you for listening to the 321 Liftoff Podcast. I'm Promo Pete, and thank you again, Bonnie King. We had a great episode. Be sure to check us out every week. And if you want more information, visit SpaceCoastFunGuide.com or BeldingCommunications.com for everything that we're doing in the area. You can also check out our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SpaceCoastFunGuide for all the entertaining things to do in our area. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Until then, take care.